0: Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fisca your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, who is back healthy. He has not shaded any particular colors. Uh, he tells me that he's back on a regular diet and all as well. Uh, someone actually tweeted us a picture of what I'm assuming was one of the Wicked Witches from Wizard of Oz or whatever. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it was a picture of a witch who is green. Uh, Mike did not take too kindly to that. He said he was not that complexion. It was more of a green-yellow, but everything is fine now. Uh, Happy Memorial Day, uh, I guess. Can you say that? I mean, it just seems weird. I mean, happy seems a weird appendage for Memorial Day, as we remember people who gave their lives serving our country. Uh, But if you have someone in your family who has served and passed away, Uh, Know that we appreciate their service and your family. Also, for those of you that follow James Hankins, the guy that we've had on three of our podcasts now as a guest, make sure to wish him congratulations. He graduated this weekend from Harvard with his master's degree in education. So, congratulations, James. All right. So, we have no Law 140 this week because the news cycle has been utterly fucking insane. And when I Tell you that. So we we've changed how I have been tracking stories for the podcast. It used to be when someone sent me a link, I would open up a new tab in a browser, check it, make sure it was a recent story, and I would just save all of the browser tabs on my phone. And then when it came time to do the outline. Uh, Max had this great thing called handoff where I can just seamlessly take what's on my phone move it to the computer No big deal. Well, I changed that up because it was taking up, you know I was maxing out the number of tabs on my browser because you can only have like a hundred I think and I was routinely hitting that So I switched around and started using a notepad file where I would actually paste in the links to the stories now the benefit to that is, of course, I don't have open browser windows, but I can also copy and paste that list into Excel and keep track of how many stories we cover versus how many we miss. Uh, We have 52 stories in today's episode. That is a 30-page outline. Uh, But here's the absolutely fucking insane part. There are another 87 stories that I did not get a chance to work in. So just in the past two weeks, if I'm doing my math correctly, that's what, 137 stories that y'all sent me? Uh, that's, that's nuts. It's totally fucking nuts. And the stories you're going to hear are absolutely fucking nuts as it is, um, But just know, no Law 140 this week. Uh, If you happen to be one of our patrons, you will have one on Tuesday. We're going to talk about conflicts of interest in the Mueller investigation uh, and why there really aren't any, just as a spoiler alert. Uh, But those will be for our friends of the Fisk over on Patreon. But for this particular podcast, the free Law 140s all of you get, I'm hoping to bring those back next week, assuming that the news cycle doesn't completely swamp us again. Uh, So, all right. If you haven't already, please make sure to join the conversation online. Our Twitter account, where people send us links, uh, is at FiskeMall. That's at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. My account is at Greg underscore Doucette. That's at G-R-E-G underscore D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. If you'd like to leave a written comment on our website, you can do that at Fiscomall.com. That is F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L.com. And if you would like to become one of our financial sponsors, you can do so at Patreon.com slash F-S-C-K. So in the uh, we're going to skip all the political news because, frankly, I don't know what the fuck is going on. There's been so many stories in such a short span of time. Stuff that I think happened weeks ago uh, turns out only happened days ago. So, by the time you get this, you know, less than 24 hours from now, there's no fucking telling what's going to happen. Uh, But we do have some court news. So, out of the Fifth Circuit, we're going to give you this opinion in the show notes, but I'm going to read you some excerpts. Uh, The Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals has basically decided that roadside rape is cool, as long as you're a doctor doing it at the behest of a police officer. Uh, The case is Gloria Bustillo's versus the El Paso County Hospital District and a few other defendants. Here are some excerpts from the opinion. The court says, quote, "'First, two female agents conducted a pat-down.'" Basically, this woman had just crossed over the border. Uh, The agents found no drugs. The agents then held Bastillos for a canine search. The canine failed to alert to the presence of drugs. Two agents then took Bastillos to a restroom where they ordered her to pull down her pants and underwear and bend over slightly." The agents conducted a visual inspection of Bustillo's vaginal and anal area. Again, the agents found no drugs. Despite no evidence of drugs, the agents placed tape on Bustillo's legs and abdomen, handcuffed her, and transported her to the University Medical Center in El Paso. At the hospital, doctors Michael Parsa and Daniel Solomon ordered a series of x-rays to search for drugs. The x-rays revealed no drugs. The doctors then performed a pelvic exam. Again, the pelvic exam evidenced no drugs. Solomon then conducted a rectal exam. The rectal exam found no drugs. As part of these searches, the doctors and nurses Lynette Tellis and Frank Mendez allegedly, quote, brutally probed Bustillos' cavities in the presence of hospital personnel. Bustillos did not consent to any of the above searches. So the court goes on from there detailing the assorted examinations that took place, and basically they decide that everyone gets qualified immunity because being repeatedly raped is not a clearly established... uh, Not being repeatedly raped, rather, is not a clearly established right that you have. Uh, From their explanation of why... The court says, quote, Bastillos argues that the doctors and nurses violated her Fourth Amendment right to be free from unreasonable searches and seizures by detaining her in order to conduct x ray, pelvic, and rectal exams without reasonable suspicion of criminal activity. The district court held those allegations cannot overcome the doctors and nurses' qualified immunity because the right at issue was not clearly established. We agree and we affirm on that ground. But they go on to explain why it's okay anyway and they say, quote, the searches conducted at the hospital were all non-routine. The doctors and nurses therefore needed reasonable suspicion of drug smuggling to constitutionally justify those searches. Whether the doctors and nurses had reasonable suspicion turns on an issue of first impression in this circuit. Must medical staff establish their own independent reasonable suspicion where law enforcement officers either state that sufficient suspicion exists or request the search? We conclude they do not. A medical professional has no constitutional duty to independently evaluate the Fourth Amendment determinations of law enforcement officers. Nonetheless, medical staff must, either through their own independent determination or through reliance on law enforcement officials, have sufficient suspicion to justify each search in a series of non-routine searches. So basically, your medical oath is first, do no harm, unless the police give you permission. So that is in the Fifth Circuit. Out of the Southern District of New York... This uh, federal judge has ruled that Donald Trump cannot block people on Twitter. I'm going to give you the full opinion in the show notes because it is very long. It is very thorough. It's fairly well reasoned. Uh, You might remember we talked way back in episode 9 in a Law 140 in that particular episode about the outcome of this case. And what I said was that it was unlikely going to be a First Amendment violation because I argued that Twitter was not a forum for First Amendment purposes. And what you're going to find in this opinion is that the judge agrees with me on pretty much everything. She went through all of Twitter, all of the stuff that Twitter does, and found that the overwhelming bulk of it is not a forum for First Amendment purposes. But uh, instead, she held that a teeny tiny part of it, which is the interactive space for first order replies after you send a tweet, she considered that as a limited public forum, And therefore, a government official, in this case, Donald Trump or Dan Scavino, blocking people from that forum constitutes a First Amendment violation. So we're not going to go into too much detail. Just know that was the outcome. We'll give you the opinion from there. Uh, In federal news, we've got five stories, but I'm going to condense them down to three stories. Uh, So first, the federal prison director, he's this general who started working not quite a year ago. He's resigned. He's resigned because first kid-in-law Jared Kushner and Attorney General Beauregard keep fighting with each other. From that story, it says, quote, When Jared Kushner hosted a high-profile summit meeting on federal prison reform at the White House last Friday, some attendants noticed that the man who was ostensibly in charge of the federal prison system, General Mark S. Inch, was nowhere in sight. Only Mr. Kushner and a few others knew that Mr. Inch, a genial former military police commander appointed to oversee the Federal Bureau of Prisons and its more than 180,000 inmates just nine months ago, had two days earlier submitted his resignation as the Bureau's director to Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein. By the time President Trump entered the East Room, Mr. Inch had already been ordered to vacate his office and begun packing up books and memorabilia from his 35-year military career. Mr. Inch told Mr. Rosenstein he was tired of the administration of flouting, subquote, departmental norms, and he complained that Attorney General Jeff Sessions had largely excluded him from major staffing, budget, and policy decisions, according to three people with knowledge of the situation. So, yeah. Uh, In ICE, and Customs and Border Protection news, there are three different sets of stories uh, that are just... I don't know how you describe it. It's general government incompetence, but a, against the backdrop of government incompetence, you have Republicans highlighting it for reasons that are, you know, unknown to me. You have Democrats who were initially highlighting it, but now they're saying they're not going to highlight it because they think the Republicans are highlighting it as a way to justify making immigration changes more strict. It's all dumb shit. But the gist of it is this. Uh, ICE is in the habit of separating kids from their parents when they cross the border. That's the first story. We're going to give you that link. Uh, Then, in addition to that, kids who show up without their parents at the border get assigned to various people. And the federal government has lost track of 1,475 of them. Uh, And then, in addition... ICE has petitioned the National Archives and Record Administration uh, to give them permission to start destroying some of their records related to sexual assaults, solitary confinement, and deaths of people in its custody. Uh, So this is all just more federal immigration dysfunction. I had lengthy quotes for all of them, but it's such a mess. I'm just going to give you the stories and let you read them yourself. Uh, In addition, the FBI, separate issue, by the way, we're still on the federal government, but the FBI has triple counted the number of cell phones that it can't unlock. Uh, If you're any involvement at all in the tech space, one of the common perpetual discussions is the federal government trying to coerce phone manufacturers into building back doors into the operating system so that the companies and the police can get into the phones when they want them to. Uh, Apple, in particular, has told the government to fuck off, that they're not going to build a backdoor into iOS, uh, because, essentially, anyone who does computing can tell you, if the government has a backdoor, that backdoor will be found by people in the private sector and exploited. That's how viruses and shit propagate. Uh, From this story in The Verge... It says, quote, The FBI inflated the number of encrypted phones connected to crimes that it did not have access to. This is the basis for them urging these back doors, is all of these phones they can't unlock. Uh, story continues, The FBI repeatedly claimed to Congress and the public that it did not have access to nearly 7,800 devices linked to criminal investigations last year, though the true number is only a fraction of that, at around 1,000 to 2,000. The Bureau has known about the inaccurate number for about a month. One internal estimate puts the accurate number of encrypted devices at 1,200. But a new audit is being launched, so that number may change. Now, how did you get this tremendous miscount? Uh, Quote, the miscount occurred because the FBI counted the same devices from three different databases. I still don't fully comprehend that because 2,000 times 3 only gets you 6,000. There seems to be some additional fuckery going on there. But regardless, know that your federal government, the Federal Bureau of Investigation, does not know how to properly count. Uh, In state-by-state criminal justice fuckery out of Arizona in Mesa, we have the first rule of fisk where a 84-year-old woman was tackled to the ground by a police officer and it was on body cam. From that story, it says, quote, Mesa Police Chief Ramon Batista said he wants to meet with senior care professionals to better understand the, subquote, unique needs of older people. After an 84-year-old woman was injured in an encounter with his officers, the woman's family said police initially told them the stroke survivor and grandmother had slipped and fell. Newly released body camera footage by the Mesa Police Department shows otherwise. A video of the Valentine's Day encounter, released Wednesday, shows an officer grabbing her by the arm and taking her down. Ashley Hahn, the woman's granddaughter, created a Facebook post with photos showing the extent of her injuries, which included bruising to the woman's arms and face. She's got a black eye out of the ordeal. Uh, Basically, the woman's grandson was uh, supposedly threatening to kill himself, so this was initially a welfare check. The police showed up to try and talk to the grandson. Grandma walked out of the house wondering what the commotion was all about because she's old and didn't fully understand. And in the midst of walking and trying to talk to a police officer, she got tackled. So we'll give you that story. Out of California, we've got so I I I ordered these by alphabet, um, you know, alphabetically sorted them by city. Uh, And it was just coincidence that the good news story was first in the list. So don't let it be said. I don't report good news. Uh, But there's an in-depth profile on a kale-not-jail nonprofit, a very California-esque thing. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, even by the standards of the Bay Area, where sourcing local organic chicken feed is seen as something of a political act, The spectacle of 30,000 fruit and nut trees being tended by formerly incarcerated orchidists, orchardists. Is that how you pronounce it? I don't fucking know. I I, I guess. If it's wrong, cut it out and and redo it. Orchardists. Not orchidists, because orchids is a flower. Orchardists. An orchard of fruit and nut trees, apparently. Uh, Sorry, forgive us. Mike and I are going back and forth. Uh, Story continues. The green thumbs are there... Because of Planting Justice, a nine-year-old nonprofit that combines urban farming with environmental education and jobs for ex-offenders. From its headquarters in a pair of salvaged shipping containers on a dead-end street in East Oakland, California, Planting Justice has forged a trail in which revenue-generating businesses help subsidize the group's core mission – hiring former inmates, many from nearby San Quentin prison, and giving them a family-sustaining wage along with health benefits and a month of paid leave annually. About half of the total staff of 30 have served time in prison. So it goes on from there. Good profile. Check it out. Uh, In Sacramento, we have the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, only new names and jurisdictions, because it turns out Sacramento PD likes to work closely with Nazis. Uh, From that story... It says, Cedric O'Bannon tried to ignore the sharp pain in his side and continue filming. The independent journalist, who is documenting a white supremacist rally in Sacramento, said he wanted to capture the neo Nazi violence against counter protesters with his GoPro camera. But the pain soon became overwhelming. He lifted up his blood soaked shirt and realized that one of the men carrying a pole with a blade on the end of it had stabbed him in the stomach, puncturing him nearly two inches deep. He limped his way to an ambulance. But the police did not treat O'Bannon like a victim. Spoiler alert, O'Bannon is black. Uh, Records obtained by The Guardian reveal that officers instead monitored O'Bannon's Facebook page and sought to bring six charges against him, including conspiracy, rioting, assault, and unlawful assembly. O'Bannon's presence at the protest, along with his use of the black power fist and, subquote, social media posts expressing his ideals, were proof that he had violated the rights of neo-Nazis at the June 26th protests police wrote in their report. None of the white supremacists have been charged for stabbing O'Bannon. O'Bannon's case is the latest example of police in the U.S. targeting left-wing activists, anti-Trump protesters, and black Americans for surveillance and prosecution over their demonstrations and online posts. At the same time, they are failing to hold neo-Nazis responsible for physical violence. So it's a long read, it goes on from there, we'll give you the link. The gist of it is this, when Obama was in the hospital, police showed up and seized the memory card from his camera, supposedly as evidence, but then erased it. They later said that they could understand why the Nazis would have perceived Obama as the threat, because his GoPro camera could have looked like a weapon, uh, and they recommended that Obama be charged because of his social media posts, being that he was routinely at protests. Uh, Ended up, he wasn't actually convicted of anything, but there you go. It's in Sacramento. Out of San Diego. This is disturbing. So a police officer groped a child and then used his work computer on 44 different occasions to check on the status of the investigation. From that story, it says, quote, a San Diego County Sheriff's deputy was ordered held on $200,000 bail on charges he groped a teenage girl at a restaurant in Vista. The deputy is accused of using his workplace computer to access information on the sheriff's department investigation, including the home address of the victim and images of her taken at the scene of the incident. Timothy Wilson Jr. was taken into custody at the Vista detention facility and booked into the San Diego central jail on one count of a felony lewd act on a child. He faces an additional felony count of accessing a computer to take data. Uh, So basically this guy was in a Panda express It doesn't explain what the felonious act was, but judging from the comments, uh, most likely he was trying to grab the girl's butt because he downloaded a whole bunch of uh, pictures and other stuff and labeled it white pants and then emailed it to himself. Uh, And the prosecutor said that on 44 different occasions between March 22nd and May 9th, he was accessing the police database to monitor the progress of the investigation and hope that they never found out it was him. So that was in San Diego, in San Francisco. The police want more power to brutalize unarmed people. Uh, Basically, the police commission approved the use of tasers recently. And as part of that policy, as well as the uh, de-escalation tactics that the city council recommended and all this other fun stuff, the language of the policy is that they can only tase people who are, quote, violently resisting. Uh, So the union was not satisfied with that, and they have now put together the petitions to have on the ballot a proposition to change it to actively resisting. Uh, So if you're just not complying good enough for the police, they're allowed to tase you. That's what they want to have happen. So it's called Proposition H. It will be on the ballot on June 5th. And they're raising enormous sums of money to try and convince people to vote for it. From the story, it says quote, The union and its backers have raised almost a quarter million dollars to build support for the measure, while its opponents have only raised 41,000. And in a low level, municipal, low turnout race, A quarter million bucks is going to buy you passage. I will be shocked if Proposition H does not pass, given the amount of money they're throwing at it. So if you're in San Francisco, good luck having an officer that decides you're not complying quickly enough because you will be able to get tased. That's out of California, in Florida, in Miami. A Miami judge is facing a suspension for describing a black defendant with a racial slur and then blaming it on his New York upbringing. From that story, it says, quote, a Miami judge who grew up in the Big Apple has come under fire for using the word moolie to describe a black defendant. Miami-Dade Circuit Judge Stephen Milan is facing a 30-day suspension and $5,000 fine for his comments, which were made in October of 2016, while speaking with the defendant's lawyer in chambers about scheduling. The 52-year-old admitted to using the term and apologized claiming it was something he said, subquote, intermittently as a youngster growing up in New York. The word is a shortened version of "malignan," which is a Sicilian slur that literally translates as eggplant, according to court officials. It's used to describe black people or anyone who has a dark complexion. Now, I knew about the eggplant part. I did not know that Mooli was apparently the New York City version of that. Uh, But if you're going to slur somebody, it's probably not a wise idea to say, oh, it's just because I'm from New York. You know, it's just fucking ridiculous. Uh, out of Orlando, if Palantir wasn't creepy enough, it turns out that Orlando police are using Amazon's real-time facial recognition technology. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, tech companies are trying to sell police real-time facial recognition systems which can track and identify people as they walk down the street. As NPR reported two weeks ago, American police have generally held off, but there's new evidence that one police department, Orlando, Florida, has decided to try it out. What's more, Orlando ordered its facial recognition system from Amazon. This information was uncovered by the ACLU, which noticed that law enforcement customers were mentioned in the marketing of Amazon's recognition service. Until now, American police have used facial recognition primarily to compare still photos from crime scenes with mugshots. But now Amazon and Orlando are taking it further by using facial recognition to spot people in real time. Subquote, the city of Orlando is a launch partner of ours. Amazon's Ranju Das recently told a developer conference in Seoul, South Korea. Subquote, they have cameras all over the city. The authorized cameras are then streaming the data. We are a subscriber to the stream. We analyze the video in real time. Search against the collections of faces they have. Creepy as fuck. I am not going back to Orlando unless it's to go to Disney World. That's it, because that's just fucking disturbing. Uh, out of Georgia to DeKalb County, killer cop Robert Olson decided to testify uh, about his shooting Anthony Hill to death. And as part of his testimony, he basically says that naked people are impervious to pain and have superhuman strength. That's the gist of it. So go back to episode 33. We talked a bit about this asshole. Uh, From the story on the recent testimony, it says, quote, Robert Olson, the former DeKalb County police officer accused of murdering unarmed Afghanistan war veteran Anthony Hill, took the stand Monday to argue charges against him should be dropped. Olson, 56, claims he acted in self-defense when he shot Hill. In Georgia, such defendants are given the opportunity to plead their case before a judge. If sufficiently convinced, the judge can dismiss the charges before the case ever goes to trial. Now, here's the, the back and forth of this that is fascinating to me, and I mean that in a bad way. So here's the back and forth between the prosecution and the defendant, this killer cop, Mr. Olson. The DA asks, What threat is a naked running man? Good-ass question. Olson responds, impervious to pain superhuman strength unlimited endurance the DA asks did he have superhuman strength isn't he dead he is dead sir because of you and your actions right I shot Mr. Hill yes it's, it's, it's oh god like it just blows my fucking mind this notion like impervious to pain okay maybe if you're on a shitload of meds maybe you don't feel the pain right away Superhuman strength, skeptical. Unlimited endurance, no. Not even physically fucking possible. So, this guy's a nut. He's a nut. He needs to go to jail. Uh, at Adoraville. So, the town government actually gloats about using police to fine residents for petty offenses as a way of balancing the town's budget, and they're getting sued for it. From that story and reason, it says, Improperly stacked wood, a cracked driveway, chipped paint on a porch... These are the kinds of offenses the government of Dorville, Georgia, is using to fine residents and threaten them with jail, all in an explicit attempt to balance the budget of the 8,000 person Atlanta suburb. Now, people hit by some of those fines are suing the city in federal court, arguing that its direct financial interest in convicting people tried by its municipal court violates the 14th Amendment's due process guarantee. The lawsuit filed by the Institute for Justice, subquote, seeks to stop municipalities from budgeting to receive fines and fees, says IJ attorney Josh House, subquote. Where you have a city that uses these numbers to balance its budget, you are creating an unconstitutional incentive to use the municipal court to do that. Godspeed, man. I hope they win, because one of the things that has irritated the fuck out of me for years is that North Carolina does this. The politicians in Raleigh at our General Assembly actually include as part of their budget a line item for how much money they plan to bring in from fines and court costs. And they use that to help balance the budget. I, I hope they win. I don't think they will because it's something that's so common I can't imagine a court stopping it now. Uh, But that would be fantastic if they did. Uh, In Dunwoody, uh, first rule of fisk, police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Turns out it doesn't just apply to police. It applies to EMTs as well. From the story, it says, quote, disturbing video from several Dunwoody police officers wearing body cameras shows an emergency medical technician attacking a restrained teen patient in the back of an ambulance. Channel 2 investigative reporter Wendy Holleran obtained the video after days of arguing for its release as a public record. The city of Dunwoody initially denied the video, but late Wednesday determined that its release would be in the public's best interest. The video is a profanity-laced screed as EMT Deanna Williams repeatedly punches a 17-year-old patient in the face. The boy is handcuffed behind his back, restrained at the ankles on a stretcher as Williams beats him. Dunwoody police officer Kevin Lopez hears yelling and screaming, and he goes to the back of the ambulance to help restrain the EMT. The teenager, who the media are not identifying, was supposed to be taken to the hospital for an evaluation. That is a kid. That is a child, a 17-year-old child, the police officer told Williams. She's been charged with assault. Uh, Out of Lawrenceville, Several teens have been in jail for more than two years without trial in a rape case where the state can't find the alleged victims and accidentally admitted to it because in a routine hearing requesting bond, media was in the courtroom and the judge asked, hey, did you notify the victim the media would be here? And the DA said, oh, well, we don't actually know how to reach the victim in this case. Uh, So I'll give you that story. It's a lengthy read. But the gist of it is you've got a kid who was accused of rape when he was 14. Uh, He's 17 now and he's still locked up and the state can't find the victim, but they're not going to release him because it's rape. So it's a serious crime, at at least in theory, when you actually have a victim. Um, So it's, you know, I don't know what's going to happen here, but basically this guy's already spent two years in jail. There's no chance he can be convicted because if you don't have a victim, you can't. Win a rape case if you're the prosecutor. It's just very strange. So we'll give you that story. Uh, in Polk County, turns out the first rule of Fisk applies in jail as well. Uh, from that story, says quote, an attorney for a jail inmate says surveillance video supports his legal claim of unnecessary force deployed by a Polk County sheriff's supervisor. The prisoner is Brandon Kaufman. He is shown in the video seated alongside a second inmate. Both of them are in restraint chairs. The deputy, Harry Dallas Battle, approaches Kaufman in the video and repeatedly applies the taser directly to the inmate's midsection. Photos show Kaufman was left with scars, burns from the taser. I saw the pictures. It's actually pretty gross, but it's like a line of five or six separate burn marks. Uh, The state examined the incident and, in a rare move, filed criminal charges against Battle. Included in the Georgia Bureau of Investigation action were the crimes of making false statements, violating his oath of office, and battery. But when the Polk County grand jury heard the matter, it refused to return an indictment. So now this particular inmate is filing suit. Uh, The attorney on this case is actually a North Carolina Central University School of Law alumnus and classmate of mine, uh, Harry Daniels, from the class of 2010. So good luck to them. So those are the stories out of Georgia. In Illinois, we've got three stories out of Chicago. Uh, The first one is a review by one of the radio stations up there, WBEZ. And what they found out is that the Illinois Department of Corrections, or uh, IDOC, as they call it, Uh, routinely keeps inmates with disabilities locked up after their release dates because they're supposed to go to like halfway houses and things, but the only halfway houses the state recognizes are ones that do not allow people with disabilities to be there. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, John Ellis gave away his long underwear to another prisoner. He didn't expect to spend another winter behind bars. He packed up his stuff and carefully tucked away important papers he'd need on the outside, like prescriptions. But when his release date finally came, the Illinois Department of Corrections didn't let him out. Subquote, they didn't tell me anything. I was kind of flipping out, like, what is going on here, Ellis said. Ellis didn't leave prison that day. In fact, he spent an extra year inside. The state of Illinois regularly keeps prisoners with disabilities beyond their release dates because of inadequate options for housing, though it's difficult to know exactly how often because the Department of Corrections says they don't bother to track that number. A WBEZ review of facilities on a corrections department's housing list found most did not accept people with a disability. Equip for Equality, a disability rights advocacy group, said the situation could be a violation of laws meant to protect people from discrimination and cost the state more money than placing people in the community. We've talked about this before on Twitter, because Mississippi does a lot of the same shit, where after you're released, they keep you locked up anyway, and the amount of money... That it costs taxpayers is insane and that money could go to schools or any of the million, but all police officer raises, you know, there's all kinds of other uses for that cash that could be done to improve society and in addition you'd have an inmate starting the process of reintegrating with the rest of the world but they don't bother to do that shit. Uh, so that's the first Chicago story. The second one, CPD protecting and serving the fuck out of your teenage girls. Uh, after a Chicago cop paid a 14-year-old girl for sex in 2015, the girl told federal investigators intimate, granular details about their encounters, including the exact types of condoms he used, Lifestyles condoms and Trojan Magnum condoms and gold wrappers, court records said. It may seem like a trivial detail that former officer William Whitley used one type of condom over another, but an FBI criminal complaint against the 20-year veteran of the Chicago Police Department points to the brand's relevance. They were used to commit the crime. They came from outside Illinois where the crime occurred. That means his conduct affected interstate commerce, according to the complaint. That interstate element made it possible to charge him in federal court where Whitley has pleaded guilty Tuesday to one count of sex trafficking a minor. Uh, Also in Chicago, killer cop Robert Rialmo is back in the news. Now, you might remember this guy we've talked in a prior episode. He's the one who killed Quintonio Legrier, and in the process of killing Legrier, also shot and killed Betty Jones, and then he sued the city, saying that he wasn't adequately trained to deal with that situation. The city sued the estate of Le Greer, saying it was Legrier's fault that Betty Jones died. We, we had two episodes on all this fuckery. I'll give you the links in the show notes. Uh, but apparently, he just decided to randomly beat the shit out of two men in a bar. And when people reported it, he said, nothing's going to happen to me. I'm a cop. So we'll give you a link to that story. So those are the three stories out of Chicago, which is everything we have for Illinois. In Kansas, in Winfield, we have another incident of the first rule of Fisk. Police will continue to dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, From that story, it says, quote, When a black man was pulled over by a police in a Kansas town on Sunday, his car was searched after an officer found, quote, vegetation on his window. Video shows. Rudy Samuel went live on Facebook at 5.40 p.m. Sunday and said in the video the police told him he had been pulled over in Winfield for allegedly failing to signal a turn within 100 feet. The video shows an officer at a patrol cruiser as Samuel talks about being pulled over. When the officer returns, the video shows, he uses a hand without a glove to pick up what he calls vegetation stuff from the driver's window seal. When the officer returns, he tells Samuel to get out of his car, Samuel said the officer has to test it first, but the officer replies, subquote, I'll test it here in a little bit, okay? I ain't going to test it right now. The officer repeats that Samuel must get out of the car, and as Samuel asks why, the officer forcibly removes him. The video goes dark, but the microphone picks up the officer, saying that Samuel is being detained so police can search the vehicle. Samuel replies that he does not consent to a search, saying police must test the vegetation first. Uh, The video abruptly ends after someone picked up the phone, meaning the police cut it off because, of course, they don't want to be recorded violating someone's rights. Uh, No drugs were found in the car, no case was opened, and Samuel was not arrested. And, you know, think about it. If someone's a a weed smoker, why the fuck would the weed be on the windshield? That just doesn't make any fucking sense. Uh, So that's in Kansas, out of Louisiana, the floor-to-ceiling clusterfuck of criminal justice. In Shreveport... An intellectually disabled black man has been released from prison after spending 20 years in uh, for a murder he did not commit. In January 1998, this is from the story, uh, Corey Dwayne Williams was in the Queensborough neighborhood when a pizza delivery driver was shot and killed. Williams was an intellectually disabled 16-year-old when the shooting occurred, according to court records. Subquote, he still sucked his thumb, urinated himself on an ordinary basis, and regularly ate dirt and paper, his attorneys wrote in a court filing. After the shooting, he fled, and when police questioned him about the killing of Jarvis Griffin, Williams confessed. Then Williams told them he was ready to go home and lay down, the police wrote. Williams was charged with murder. Convicted and sentenced to death, before later being resentenced to life in prison. Sidebar: That was because of a recent Supreme Court decision that said that you can't execute people who are mentally incompetent. Um, on Tuesday, more than two decades after Williams's arrest, he walked free from the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola. Why is this? Why is this guy going free now? Well, you'll find quote: Williams's attorneys had petitioned the U.S. Supreme Court to hear the case. And Louisiana's response was due in mid-June. Louisiana authorities ultimately decided to end the case rather than defend it before the high court. In a joint motion filed with Williams's attorneys on Monday, James E. Stewart Sr., the Caddo Parish District Attorney, said the state undertook an investigation into the case, reviewing witness statements, transcripts, and police reports. They concluded that Williams' constitutional rights, subquote, were potentially violated at his original trial. No fucking shit. Uh, and asked the judge to vacate the original conviction and sentence. So that's in Louisiana, in Maryland, out of Prince George's County, an officer is being charged with assault for pouring a beer down a guy's shirt during a traffic stop outside of the guy's own house. From that story, it says, quote, a Maryland police officer accused of pouring a beer down a man's shirt after issuing a parking citation, has been charged with second-degree assault, according to prosecutors. A Prince George's County grand jury indicted Brentwood Police Officer Eliah Cole this week. He was also charged with a count of misconduct in office and related charges, whatever the fuck that means. It just says related charges, but if there's only one count of it, then I'm assuming it ties to the misconduct in office. From the story continues, quote, the charges stem from a February 15th incident in which Cole was issuing a parking citation for a van outside a home. They said a man was sitting inside the vehicle with a can of open beer after returning home from work with two friends. The men had been waiting for another resident in the home to come out and move a car so they could park. Uh, So I don't know if any of you have lived in homes with lots of people. I've had that particularly happen in my youth where my grandparents would be kind of like the focal point for family gatherings. So if people had to leave or go somewhere, come back, you had to have people move out of the driveway, park on the grass strip, and reshuffle the cars around. It's basically what was happening here. Uh, So it continues. Cole ordered the victim and the other two passengers, all of whom were Spanish-speaking immigrants and understood limited English, uh, ordered them out of the vehicle and issued a parking violation and a citation for an open container. After issuing the citations, Cole ordered the victim to pour out the beer, which the man apparently refused. So when he refused, the officer took the can of beer, or took a different can of beer, one that was not opened, and poured it down the back of the guy who happened to have been driving. Uh, Cole had his body camera turned on while issuing the citation, but later turned it off. Surprise! So there's no record of him actually pouring the beer down the guy's shirt. Uh, Out of Massachusetts, in Boston a homeless man, I guess add buying food while black to the list of things that will land you in jail. Uh, It says a homeless man is suing fast food giant Burger King after staff at one of the company's Boston locations had him arrested for trying to pay for his food with an allegedly counterfeit bill. The man, Emery Ellis, was then jailed for three months after a judge determined that his arrest violated his terms of probation for an earlier conviction. Just one problem. The money was real. According to his complaint, Ellis was trying to buy a breakfast at Burger King one morning in November of 2015 when the cashier asserted that his $10 bill was bogus. Now, a sidebar if you're going to counterfeit money, no normal person would counterfeit a $10 bill. You either counterfeit ones because no one bothers to check them, or you counterfeit 20s because they're the most common large denomination bill that people use or you go really buck wild and counterfeit 50s or 100s, but those are most likely going to get checked. Uh, So this story just doesn't even make sense at that point. Anyhow, they say the $10 bill was fake. Story continues, quote, Ellis insisted otherwise, and when that cashier wouldn't budge, he said, hey, give me my $10 back. I'll go on about my way. Instead of returning the bill, restaurant staff called the police. Ellis was arrested and later charged with forgery of a banknote, a crime that in Massachusetts can carry a life sentence. Ellis was released in February of 2016 after authorities examined the bill and determined it was real. A judge subsequently determined there had been no probation violation because buying breakfast at Burger King, really it is a crime because Burger King sucks, but it's not a something that should land you a prison type of crime. Uh, So that's in Massachusetts, out of Michigan. We got two stories there in Detroit. Two Detroit Police Department officers have been charged with felony assault and then lying to investigators about what happened. From that story, it says, quote, Chief James Craig defending his department after two of his own, former Commander Timothy Leach and Officer Frederick Person, were charged in a St. Patrick's Day Corktown bar assault and lying to cover it up. Wayne County Prosecutor Kim Worthy handed down the charges Wednesday. Leach, who has since been demoted to lieutenant, was working at Detroit's Atavia as a private security guard without Detroit PD approval and without a license. District Attorney Worthy says when Leach went to kick out 42-year-old Michael Karpovich, he pushed him so hard Karpovich fell to the floor, causing severe head injuries. Karpovich was rushed to the hospital, but we're told when officers arrived, Leach never reported the use of force. Uh, But we are told when officers arrived, sorry, apostrophes matter. We're as in the media. The media was told when officers arrived, Leach never reported the use of force. Uh, Officer Person, who was also working at the restaurant as security during the alleged assault, also never reported it and then lied to investigators about what happened. Like Leach, Person never had Detroit PD approval to work a second job. Uh, And they've got some quotes from the chief that I don't know if these are tweets or just really cryptic emails? Because it, it just it's not English. Uh, it says, Bad decisions we hire from human race police officer, not perfect, doesn't mean we don't set professional standard. Chief James Craig said. If there's an allegation of a cover-up, we take it very seriously, but doesn't reflect organization. Uh, I strongly disagree. Uh, out of Taylor. Video released in the beating of Cody Meredith basically confirms first rule of Fisk again. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they're being recorded. Uh, Basically, this guy pulled into his own driveway but didn't use a turn signal to pull into his own driveway, which led to him being arrested, and in the process, he got tased. From the story, it says, quote, A Michigan man is accusing police officers of using excessive force during a 2016 arrest outside his home. I stopped at a stop sign, and they followed me home from there, Cody Meredith said. What started as a drive home for Meredith ended with him landing in the backseat of a Taylor police car with injuries from the arrest. Uh, On March 29th of 2016, two Taylor police officers saw Meredith heading home at 2.30 in the morning. Police reports claim he, subquote, braked heavily in order to not run a stop sign. Meredith was just a block away from his house, and when he turned into his driveway, he didn't use a turn signal, according to police. That's when the officers turned on their lights. The incident was captured on audio and video. The audio recording began the moment officers turned the lights on. At the time, Meredith was already out of his car. And if you look at the the video... The police almost immediately tackle the guy to the ground. There's like almost no time elapsing and they just start beating the shit out of him. And even after a supervisor and other police show up, Meredith is handcuffed. He can't move. The other officers join in on the beating. They're all jointly kicking his ass. Uh, The incident happened in front of Meredith's mother's house and he can be heard in the video screaming for her during the arrest in the video. An officer told Meredith, shut the fuck up, you piece of shit and claimed Meredith had a warrant out for his arrest. Turns out, Meredith didn't have any outstanding warrants, and the moment the police realized they had the wrong person was caught on video. But police did find a small bag of marijuana inside the car when they searched it, so they charged him with drug possession, Uh, but Meredith had a medical marijuana card, so the drug possession charge was dropped. He was also charged with two counts of assaulting a police officer. The Taylor Police Department hasn't revealed if any of the officers involved were disciplined or whether they remain on the force. So think about the series of absurdities here. The guy pulls into his own driveway without using a turn signal, gets pulled over for that. It's a case of mistaken identity because the police claim he has a warrant when he doesn't. They tackle him to the ground and beat the shit out of him, find weed and charge him with that, but that's dismissed because it's legal for him. And he still gets charged with resisting arrest by assaulting these particular police officers who had no fucking business approaching him in the first place. Uh, So that's out of Taylor, Michigan in Mississippi, out of Laurel, uh, two unnamed police officers have been fired for beating the shit out of James Barnett for the heinous crime of turning around before reaching a traffic checkpoint. From that story, it says, quote, Two Mississippi police officers could be facing additional charges after they were terminated by the Laurel Police Department for allegedly beating 36-year-old James Barnett last week. Barnett was pursued by officers after reaching a vehicle checkpoint and turning around in Jasper County. Following a short chase, Barnett was pulled over, and the officers approached his car with their guns drawn. Police told Barnett to get down on the ground, and when he did, they began kicking him. The police then transported him to the South Central Regional Medical Center, where he was beaten even more. The supervisor on duty realized that there was a problem with the arrest that occurred, according to... God, that's an understatement of the fucking year. Realized there was a problem with the arrest that occurred, according to the Laurel Police Department. The department's internal affairs began investigating hours after the incident occurred, and the next day the officers, who were not named, were fired. Now, here's the part that makes me chuckle. So the department released a statement. And that says, quote, the officers and administration of the Laurel Police Department take these types of allegations very seriously. It should be noted that the IA was initiated only hours after the incident occurred before any media attention, social media posts or even a formal complaint from the individual involved. I I guess give them kudos for being proactive. It certainly would be nice if they didn't hire bad cops in the first place. Uh, But I'll look for wins where we can get them. Out of Montana, how do you pronounce, is it Hav, Harv, Haver, Haver? You think it's Haver? We'll go with Haver. Okay. In Haver, Montana, the first rule of Fisk, again, uh, turns out that a pair of Americans were at a gas station and spoke Spanish to each other. So a Customs and Border Protection, putting that in air quotes, officer uh, detained them. And said, you have to show me ID or I will have you deported. And, of course, everything is on video. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, we were just talking, and then I was going to pay, said one of the women. I looked up and saw the agent, and then after that, he just requested my ID. I looked at him, like, are you serious? And he's like, yeah, very serious. Uh, Later on in the video, which they started recording, he says that the only reason he is detaining them... Is because they speak Spanish, and in Montana, people speak English, and it's not because of their race. So I got news for you. Speaking a foreign language is not reasonable suspicion or probable cause, Uh, but that's in Montana, in New Jersey. We've got two stories. Again, I, I sort these alphabetically so it is by accident that the good news happens to come first, but don't let it be said I don't report good news. Police do treat deer better than black folks. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, New Jersey police say an officer performed a successful roadside C-section on a deer that had died after being hit by a car on Sunday morning. In a Facebook post, the Washington Township Police Department said one fawn survived. Photos showed Officer Jim Verdon swaddling the deer after performing the cesarean in the middle of the night. Animal control officials wrote that uh, Vernon took the initiative after being dispatched to a deceased doe that was just hit and still had moving fawn inside of it. Uh, out of Wildwood, New Jersey, first rule of Fisk, in this case applied to 20-year-old white girls, uh, beaten for the heinous crime of underage drinking. From that story, it says, "Quote A video made its rounds on social media Saturday showing police officers wrestling a woman to the ground and punching her in the head at a beach in Wildwood. The video shared on Twitter nearly 8,000 times begins when an officer has the woman pinned down and she is kicking her legs in the air. People in the background can be heard shouting, stop resisting, before the officer punches the woman in the head twice. Emily Weinman of Philadelphia posted the video on her Facebook page, saying she is underage and had alcohol on the beach when officers approached her. Weinman said she passed a breathalyzer test and afterwards police followed her as she walked away to make a phone call. Wyman says she refused to give the officer her name, and the officer threatened to arrest her. She said as she was backing away, she tripped and fell, and the officer tackled her. The Wildwood Police Department told NJ Advance Media on Sunday morning that there was no one available to comment on the incident until after the Memorial Day holiday. Uh, So I looked at this, and the video is actually worse than the media portrayal of it. Basically, this guy has her pinned in the sand face down so she can't breathe. And, uh, you know, depending on where you're at, sand is actually hot when it's summertime, uh, but has her in a headlock. So he's got her on the ground face down in the dirt as she's kicking her legs up because she can't breathe. So he then wrenches her back in a, in reverse, essentially uh, punches her in the head twice and then twists her back the other way Like she's a ragdoll all the whole fucking time uh, It's pretty disturbing So take a look at that video Out of New York City We got the first rule of fisk again In this case NYPD deliberately tries to run over a bicyclist And then to cover it up They arrest him for crimes that don't actually happen uh, From the story it says "Quote In the video The cyclist gets thrown from his bike Sails through the air And hits the ground hard Heinz Rodriguez, a twenty six year old from Queens New York, was riding his bike in the Corona neighborhood on August thirteenth of two thousand and fifteen Based on surveillance footage from the area, we now know how the ride ended. A pair of police officers following Rodriguez in an unmarked car veered toward him, running him off the road, and possibly striking him. Rodriguez crashed on the sidewalk, landing on his side. Both officers then left their car, approached Rodriguez after he got to his feet, and cuffed his hands behind his back. They charged him with resisting arrest. Why did they target Rodriguez in the first place? That's not entirely clear. The NYPD said officers Zhang Xiaoping and Alan Chan were attempting to pull him over for biking the wrong way down a one-way street. However, the security footage shows Rodriguez biking with traffic when the officers drove into his path. Police also claim they found 12 bags of marijuana on Rodriguez after they stopped him. However, Rodriguez never faced any charges over the weed and was only charged with resisting arrest. The officers reported that he flailed around and refused to be handcuffed. Yet the footage shows him peacefully submitting to the cuffs. The charge was later dropped. That's out of New York. In North Carolina, we got one, two, three, four. We got four stories. Gosh, is it five stories? Four stories. And I got lengthy quotes for all of them. So I'm going to try and figure out what I can summarize here. So in Asheville, the city council has voted to make the Asheville Police Department use consent forms for consent searches like we do in Durham. So typically, if you give police consent to search, they don't need a warrant. They don't need probable cause or anything else. If a police officer walks up to you on the street tomorrow and says, hey, can I search your home? Uh, You give them permission to do that and everything is fine as far as the courts are concerned. Well, what you had happened in several cities is police claiming consent was given only to be found on cell phone, video or otherwise that that was not the case. So in Durham, we required people to use signed consent forms. Uh, Asheville is now doing the same. So I've got lengthy quotes. I'm going to skip all of it. The gist of it is the city council passed this resolution ordering the city manager to require the police department to do this remains to be seen if it will happen. uh, But the police union is losing its mind and is threatening to sue saying that because of this change, officers now won't be able to ask for consent to search, uh, which is bullshit. Officers can always ask for consent. The catch is now they just have to have a form signed by the person being searched agreeing that they're giving that consent. Uh, So we'll see. So Asheville is now the fourth city in North Carolina to require signed consent forms. Uh, Out of Durham, Politico has an in-depth profile on Jesse McCoy, who is a North Carolina Central University School of Law alumnus. Uh, From the class of 2008, a friend of mine talking about his work at the Duke University School of Law Clinic fighting evictions. Uh, NCCU gets completely whitewashed from the story. It gets mentioned one time about where McCoy went to school, but it's fine. You know, it's like when I go help UNC Chapel Hill do trial advocacy stuff. I don't need you to tell me, you know, details about my school. We all know where I went. But it's a cool profile basically talking about uh, the eviction epidemic here in Durham and how the clinical program at Duke is basically trying to work with landlords to stop people from getting kicked out of their homes. So we give you a link to that one. Uh, In Elkin, we have the third rule of Fisk. There are no new stories, just new names and jurisdictions. Uh, We had another deadly high-speed crash, except this time the person who died was a state highway patrolman. Uh, A kid, well, I guess he's not a kid, he's 22, so he's a young adult, was going through a license checkpoint and didn't stop. So two officers went chasing after him. One of them lost control to his car and crashed into a bridge abutment. What is a bridge abutment? I don't actually know. I think it's one of those little pillar things holding the bridge up. It's one of my things where my English is not as expansive as it probably should be. Uh, So basically, Trooper Samuel Bullard, who was 24, was killed in the crash. They've charged the kid who went through the traffic checkpoint with murder, which is insane to me. Because there's no obligation to go on a high-speed chase after somebody. You could just get the license plate information and get them later. Uh, But this is one of now about a dozen different deadly chase stories that we've covered in a year on the podcast. So we'll give you the links to all of those. Uh, Let's see. Out of Raleigh. Footage is going to be released in the brutal police beating of a black man. Uh, who committed the heinous crime of mouthing off to police. From that story, it says, quote, a Wake County judge agreed on Friday to release video from body and dashboard cameras from law enforcement officers who responded to an incident where a Raleigh man suffered dog bites and injuries during an encounter with police, sheriff's deputies, and North Carolina Highway Patrol troopers. Judge Graham Shirley ordered the release of video and audio recordings from the Wake County Sheriff's Department, the Raleigh Police Department, and state troopers in response to a petition from the News & Observer and Capital Broadcasting. The order for the recordings to be released on Wednesday comes 10 days after a Wake County Grand Jury handed up indictments against Wake County Deputy Cameron Broadwell and North Carolina Highway Patrol Troopers Michael Blake and Tabithia Davis. They are accused of beating and injuring Kyron Dwayne Hinton, 29, with flashlights and a police dog. Hinton has said his encounter with police left him with a broken eye socket and nose, 21 bite marks, and multiple cuts to his head. I'm going, to note, I'm going to give you the story, but I'm going to note one of the accused is being represented by Barry Henline, North Carolina Central University School of Law, class of 2013, also a classmate of mine. Uh, as much as I rag on bad police, they are entitled to a competent defense, just like everyone else. So kudos to Barry for stepping up there. So those are the stories out of North Carolina. In Ohio, in Canton, we have, God, I've got, it amazes me how many stories in just a week we can have for the first rule of fisk. This is why it is the first rule. Police will continue to do dumb shit even when they are being recorded. From the story, it says, quote, it could have been a routine traffic stop for an Ohio State Highway Patrol trooper and three Canton police officers. Instead, the driver, Ronald Wagner of Navarre, I'm assuming that's how you pronounce it. I don't actually know. Uh, Now needs surgery on his arm after being bitten and bloodied by a Canton police dog that was unleashed on him for refusing to exit his car. Police body camera video of the incident is tough to watch. Canton police say officers pulled over Wagner's car last Sunday for suspicious or unauthorized license plates. Officers can be heard saying that the plate was attached to a driver with a concealed carry permit. Wagner says he doesn't have a CCW and refuses to give officers his name, address, or any other personal information, citing his Fifth Amendment right to remain silent. However, officers disagree, telling him he is obligated by law to give that information or it is an arrestable crime. Wagner remains calm, but stubbornly refuses to comply with orders to get out of his car. After about 20 minutes, officers lose their patience and summon a police dog. The police canine handler gives Wagner one last chance by telling him exactly what is about to happen. Officers then smashed the car windows with their batons and unleashed the police dog that bit Wagner while he screamed. Uh, he's going to need surgery on his arm, he already had one surgery, he's going to need a second, and likely has permanent nerve damage, all because police got impatient after just 20 minutes. Out of Hamilton County, we have two different stories. From the exact same sheriff's department, a set of corrections officers... Uh, From the first one, it says, quote, State authorities arrested a Hamilton County corrections officer Thursday on a child pornography charge. Joshua Yeager, 30, shared child porn online. A special agent with the Ohio Bureau of Criminal Investigation said in an affidavit that he downloaded child pornography from an IP address that led to Yeager's Delhi Township home. Yeager is facing a charge of pandering sexually oriented matter involving a minor. Hamilton County Sheriff Jim Neal said he relieved Yeager of duty and placed him on unpaid administrative leave. Yeager has worked for the sheriff's office since November of 2006. That is separate from a separate corrections officer, Jason Mize, uh, who has now been federally indicted for abusing an inmate. From that story, it says, quote, a WCPO I-Team investigation that revealed video of a Hamilton County Corrections Officer pushing a 61 year old prisoner head first into a concrete wall led to the former deputy's arrest on federal charges Thursday. A federal grand jury charged Jason Mize, 31, of Cincinnati, with one count of deprivation of rights under color of law. FBI agents arrested Mize Thursday, according to a news release from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Hamilton County recently agreed to pay $500,000 to Mark Myers of Silverton, Ohio, to settle a federal lawsuit against Mize and Sheriff Jim Neal in the case even though the Hamilton County Prosecutor's Office refused to seek charges against Mize. This is going to surprise you, I know. Uh, it was Mize's fourth use-of-force violation since the Sheriff's Office hired him. Mize resigned from the Sheriff's Office on February 25th of 2017, six months after the Myers incident. So those are all in Ohio, in Oregon, out of Hood River. So this is one of those, I, I, I don't know if it's a bad thing per se, it's just so what-the-fuck-ish. But at the same time, I get it, if that makes sense. Uh, so a judge has ordered a 15-year-old boy, so 15 years old. The kid basically started a fire uh, that went through a whole the Columbia River Gorge, last September. But has ordered him to pay more than $36 million in restitution, a 15-year-old. Uh, from that story, it says, quote, A judge ruled that the teenage boy convicted for starting the Eagle Creek fire that burned through the Columbia River Gorge last September must pay more than $36 million in restitution as part of his punishment. Judge John A. Olson considered an argument by the boy's lawyer that the hefty bill was absurd and a cruel and unusual punishment. However, Olson concluded in a judgment Monday morning that the restitution, quote, is clearly proportionate to the offense because it does not exceed the financial damages caused by the youth. The 15-year-old, who has not been named in court documents, will pay the restitution on a schedule set by the Hood River Juvenile Department. After 10 years, if he has completed probation and avoided any other criminal charges, the court can consider forgiving the remaining debt. Here's the thing. This kid's going to be fucked for those 10 years. Because if you've ever had, so like I've had times where I've been like behind on my taxes, I've had times where I've been behind on car payments, you know, there's all kinds of other shit where periodically when you're broke, especially during the years where I was a college dropout, if even the slightest fucking thing goes wrong, you know, you end up with a flat tire or you need unexpected maintenance or your power bill is higher than normal. You know, it's just, it can completely fuck up your financial life. So this kid is 15, has never really had a job, is going to go to juvie for a period of time. And he's going to have to repay some portion of tens of millions of dollars on a schedule that the juvenile department's going to put together, his probation folks are going to put together. And they base that as a percentage of your income. And they don't really give a fuck about anything else that comes up that's unexpected, uh, so this kid's going to be fucked until at least those 10 years go by, and he better pray that the court forgives the rest of it, because otherwise he's going to be fucked for the rest of his life. In North Bend, a high school principal and a school resource officer, which is the fancy term we use for cops, uh, had both been fired for harassing LGBT students when they reported being bullied. From that story, it says, "Quote: North Bend high school principal Bill Lucero and school resource officer Jason Griggs, again an SRO, is a fully sworn police officer, are being removed from their jobs in the district's settlement with the American Civil Liberties Union of Oregon. The firings come after complaints from former and current students, including Liv Funk and Haley Smith, about suffering anti-LGBTQ harassment and discrimination from classmates and administration. Subquote, the discrimination wasn't an isolated incident and it didn't just come from students, Smith wrote. When I told the principal that my civics teacher called me out in front of the whole class and said same-sex marriage was pretty much the same thing as marrying a dog, the principal told me, subquote, Everybody has the right to their own opinion. The next day, the teacher apologized, but as I walked away, he said, Don't go marrying your dog. Funk adds that she was once attacked by two classmates outside the school. The boys yelled things like, I fucking hate homos at Funk before hitting her twice with a skateboard. When she tried to report the incident, Funk says Griggs, the school resource officer slash cop, told her being gay is a choice and it is against my religion. He said he had homosexual friends, but because I was an open homosexual, I was going to hell. So apparently the job of protecting and serving has certain exceptions. Uh, So that's in North Bend out of Pennsylvania in New Kensington. We have the third rule of Fisk. No new stories, just new names or jurisdictions. Uh, Another exoneration, essentially from a story says, quote, a former Harrison man jailed since 1991 for the rape of a new Kensington woman chided prosecutors Wednesday after a judge ordered a new trial based on DNA evidence in the decades old case. The Commonwealth needs to really know what they are doing before they put an innocent man in jail. John Kunko, 52, said as he was led from the Westmoreland County Courthouse to the county jail where he was to be released. Subquote, after 28 years, they still don't want to let it go. Common Pleas Court Judge Christopher Feliciani ordered a retrial after lawyers for the Innocence Project argued testing revealed Kunko's DNA was not found on evidence collected at the crime scene. Also factoring into the retrial was unreliable bite mark testimony and what Feliciani called a faulty voice identification used to convince, convict, Kunko. Basically, the guy has a lisp and the police officer that was talking to the uh, victim imitated the lisp as a way of how the guy talked, even though the victim hadn't actually heard the lisp. Uh, To me, this is overwhelming, the judge said. Prosecutors said they plan to appeal the ruling. Uh, All this means is that the real rapist is still out there because the government fucked up. Uh, In Philadelphia, also Pennsylvania, another third Rule of Fisk moment. Surprise, another exoneration from the story. It says, quote, a Philadelphia judge has dropped first degree murder charges against a man who spent 11 years in prison for a shooting he did not commit. Dantia Patterson was 17 years old when his friend Antoine Jackson was fatally shot on a city street outside a grocery store in January 2007. Mr. Patterson, who lived nearby, called for help and asked people at the scene if they knew what had happened. It's not really the way murderers act. Uh, quote, but he was charged with murder, and after two trials, sentenced to life in prison without parole. On Tuesday, the Philadelphia District Attorney, Larry Krasner, filed a motion that said his office would not try Mr. Patterson a third time, and that evidence had been withheld during his previous trials, one of which had ended with a hung jury. Mr. Krasner requested the charges be dropped, and on Wednesday, Judge Catherine Streeter Lewis of the Court of Common Pleas agreed. Mr. Krasner and Anthony Voci, who is in charge of the office's homicide unit, said in their motion that there was no physical evidence linking Mr. Patterson to the crime. Subquote, the Commonwealth will not retry a case against a man who is probably innocent and whose case is so lacking in integrity. Key evidence was not presented at trial, the motion said, including a document containing information from a confidential source who said Mr. Jackson's murder was the result of a turf battle by drug dealers and named three suspects, none of whom were Mr. Patterson. Two witnesses who identified Mr. Patterson had been standing about 120 feet away when Mr. Jackson was killed. Other more credible witnesses were not called to testify, including the store owner who knew Mr. Patterson and had told the investigators he was not the person who shot Mr. Jackson. Mr. Vosche wrote in the motion that Mr. Patterson's conviction was, an egregious example of police and prosecutorial misconduct in hiding evidence helpful to the defense. The case against Patterson was illogical. Mr. Patterson was tried twice on the murder charges. In August 2008, a jury was unable to reach a unanimous verdict. But in 2009, another jury convicted him of first-degree murder. All this means is that the real murderer is still out there. In South Carolina, in Myrtle Beach, this is one of those holy shit moments So agents from the 15th Circuit Drug Enforcement Unit routinely forced their way into people's homes without knocking on doors and announcing themselves, even though that's required by law. From that story, it says, quote, portions of drug agents testimony appear in a 45 page report from U.S. magistrate judge Kamani West that was filed Monday in federal court. The documents are connected to a lawsuit filed by a Myrtle Beach man who was shot nine times by police in 2015 during a drug raid at his apartment. The shooting left Julian Benton a paraplegic. The city of Myrtle Beach and Myrtle Beach police officer David Ballou are defendants in the lawsuit and they asked the court for a summary judgment dismissing the case. However, the judge not only recommended the case proceed, her report highlights new evidence that DEU agents often plowed through the doors of suspects without announcing their presence, which they are required to do to comply with the U.S. Constitution's Fourth Amendment prohibition against unreasonable searches and seizures. The judge pointed out the critical information in her recommendation came from the officers themselves. Subquote Based on this testimony, which supports an inference of numerous alleged violations of the knock and announce requirement, the DEU had a widespread and persistent policy of executing search warrants without knocking and announcing and waiting a reasonable time before entering a private residence, West wrote. So that's in South Carolina. In Tennessee, we got two stories out of Nashville uh, Matthew Charles, we've talked about him in episode 46 and 59. He is back in prison. He is the guy who was sentenced for an obscene period of time as a habitual offender when he was caught with drugs. Uh, The federal government under Obama said, well, you know, we're going to not apply this to you. You're free. They let him out. He's been out for two years. By all accounts, a model citizen, volunteers, got married, whatever else. Uh, The government was pissed that Obama let him out. So they appealed. The court of appeal said, you know what? Obama's conduct, Uh, allowing this guy out early was improper. So go back to the district court, put him back in prison. Uh, So that's what happened. So the story we're going to give you is a, it's basically a profile of a party, a going away party that they had uh, because he's now going back to prison. So you don't go to the justice system for justice. Uh, Also out of Nashville, judge Casey Moreland has pled guilty to federal charges. He's the judge we talked about in episode 57 where Uh, Let me just read you the story because it's one of those really crazy ones where he did stuff and then tried to cover it up and then tried to frame somebody as part of the cover up, et cetera, et cetera. But there are some new developments here that were not in our earlier podcast Uh, from the story. It says, quote, Casey Moreland, once one of Nashville's most powerful judges entered a guilty plea in federal court Thursday admitting he attempted to bribe an ex-paramour and that he conspired to steal from a program for recovering drug addicts. Moreland, 60 sat in a teal jail jumpsuit while prosecutors described the theft and his elaborate and repeated attempts to squelch a corruption investigation against him. Standing under oath moments later in the U.S. District Court in Nashville, Moreland admitted it was all true. He pleaded guilty to obstruction of justice, retaliating against a witness, theft from a federally funded program, destruction of records, and witness tampering. Pause. Think of how many people this guy put away as a judge, and he's committing all of these crimes. Uh, story continues. Quote Moreland was first indicted in April 2017 on charges he tried to interfere with a federal grand jury and FBI investigation. Law enforcement was investigating whether he used his judicial influence to offer favors to friends and lovers in exchange for sex or other benefits. That was the part we covered in our earlier episode. Uh, The FBI says Moreland and semi-pro wrestler James Padigo tried to bribe Natalie Amos, a woman who'd publicly stated she slept with Moreland, in order to get herself out of legal trouble. Padigo ended up helping the FBI after agents confronted him, offering evidence, federal prosecutors say, shows Moreland attempted to bribe and plant drugs on Amos in an effort to discredit her. After pleading not guilty, Moreland was allowed to remain out of jail on supervised release. But on March 1st, the FBI arrested Moreland again, saying he continued his attempts to hamstring the case by destroying evidence and pushing a witness to lie under oath. Moreland repeatedly worked to hide the fact that he used the Davidson County Drug Court, an entity he started and led for more than a decade, to funnel cash to himself and a colleague. The FBI states over several years, Moreland orchestrated the theft of thousands of dollars from the foundation that supported the drug court's work, after the FBI launched its investigation into Moreland's conduct, the former judge allegedly asked an accomplice to destroy the evidence. Gosh. So that's out of Tennessee. In Texas, we've got a couple cases there. In Houston, we have the first rule of Fisk again. I guess technically this would be like a third rule of Fisk thing, too. I mean, you think about that case in South Carolina where the officer said they only shoot black people. It's kind of similar. Uh, From the story, it says, quote, Houston, Texas, police chief Art Acevedo is defending the tactics officers used after they stopped a vehicle that had been reported stolen. But one phrase yelled by the arresting officer from a loudspeaker during the stop was, subquote, not consistent with expectations of officer conduct. Acevedo tweeted in a statement. Danae Harris, a Houston resident, according to her Facebook profile, filmed the stop outside of Walgreens Pharmacy on Tidwell Road. While issuing commands to each of the four individuals inside the blue SUV, the officer told one passenger, a black woman, that her hands were not high enough in the air. Now, bear in mind, she was a passenger. She was never charged with anything. Uh, The officer said, quote, over your head. Pretend like we're going to shoot you. The officer says at about the two minute 42nd mark of Harris's six minute video during the stop, the officers follow tactics and procedures designed to take suspects into custody in a manner that maximizes safety for both officers and suspects. Chief Acevedo's statement read in part, it continues quote, while the tactics used were consistent with policy, the phrase in question is not consistent with the expectations of the Houston police department. Yeah. Cause shooting black people is a fucking joke. Uh, out of Laredo. We have the third rule of Fisk, different context this time. This is not an exoneration. This is Customs and Border Patrol killing someone at the border and then lying about it. Uh, from the story it says quote, "United States Customs and Border Protection on Friday released a slightly different account of a border agent's fatal shooting of an undocumented migrant near Laredo, Texas, raising new questions about what actually happened. After initially reporting the agent was attacked by migrants armed with, subquote, blunt objects, the federal agency on Friday said only that the group, subquote, rushed the officer after ignoring orders to get on the ground. But its latest version of events makes no mention of blunt objects, described in an agency statement issued after Wednesday's shooting in the border town of Rio Bravo. Additionally, the Border Patrol at first reported that a round from the officer's gun, subquote, fatally wounded one of the assailants. But the latest statement refers to the gunshot victim as a, subquote, member of the group. Customs and Border Protection on Friday canceled a news conference on the shooting and instead released its updated statement. I'm going to tell you why. They do that when they realize that they've been caught. The only time you see the police conduct news conferences is when they think that the facts are on their side. When they don't, they generally avoid it. So that's what's happening here with CBP. Uh, continues, quote, The woman who was killed was identified as Claudia Patricia Gomez Gonzalez, 20, of San Juan Estoncalco in Guatemala. The family said the young woman had just turned 20 and graduated after studying accounting and had headed to the United States for a better life. According to the family, the victim had a phone number with her of a family member in the United States, and the Border Patrol called that number to report that Gomez was dead. The family that received the call in the U.S. then called her family in Guatemala to let them know. You you gotta imagine how fucking crazy that is. Your two parents, your kid just finished studying accounting, says, Hey, I'm going to go to the United States. And days later, you get a call. Hey, United States killed her. It's fucking ridiculous. Uh, We need to disband CBP, to be honest with you. Uh, Out of Virginia, in Chesterfield, a college student was tased and arrested for the heinous crime of having a broken brake light in his own driveway. From that story, it says, quote, the Chesterfield County police chief said he would allow Okana Adembo and his family to view police body camera video from a tense encounter with a police officer Tuesday afternoon that resulted in Adembo getting tased and arrested inside his father's Chesterfield home. A video showing a portion of the encounter in which the officer grabs Adembo and tries to pull him out of his car has been viewed more than three million times in less than one day. That viral video, captured by Odembo's girlfriend, Elizabeth Smith, shows a minute and a half of the incident. The full body camera video is four minutes long. It shows from when the officer first speaks with Odembo, who had pulled into his father's driveway before the encounter, and ends when the officer chases Odembo to the back of his father's house on Hollywood Court. So the gist of it is this. Kid gets pulled over, supposedly for the broken taillight. Officer says he's going to uh, write him a citation. And the kid mouths off to the officer saying, why are you doing this? I'm in my own driveway. Rather than just let it fucking go because the citation has been written and you don't have to have anything else. You just give the guy the fucking citation and call it a day. The officer decides he's going to make the kid get out of the car. The kid says no. And then escalates from there. So eventually he pulls the kid out of the car. The kid tries to run into the house And in the process gets tased and the officer claims that he was beaten up by the kid, which, you know, the notion that a 19 year old is going to beat you up as you're a trained police officer is mildly comical. But in addition, he cut off his body camera. So to my mind, if you don't have a body cam, you don't have proof the kid did it because you cut it off for a reason. But regardless, there was no basis for the kid to be removed from the car. You don't have to have him out of the car to give him a citation. The officer's ego was hurt that a black kid mouthed off to him and wanted to give him a nice little beating. Uh, So that's in Virginia, out of Wisconsin, in Milwaukee. We got both the first and third rules of Fisk here uh, because basically Sterling Brown, an NBA player, had the shit beaten out of him for no particular reason. The police lied about it, and then the video basically proved that Brown was right the entire time. From that story, it says, quote, As a gang of Milwaukee police officers surrounded Sterling Brown, forced him face first into the pavement, and fired a taser into his back, he thought about everything he had to live for. Subquote, I gave in so they didn't pull out their guns, he said. Five months after the incident in a Walgreens parking lot in the middle of the night, the Milwaukee Bucks rookie is still trying to figure out why it all went down the way it did. This week, Brown is under a spotlight he didn't ask for after the Milwaukee Police Department released a body camera video of officers arresting and tasing him over a parking violation in January. In the video, Brown remains calm and polite as the police become progressively more confrontational. When Brown first walked out of the Walgreens about 2 in the morning on January 26th and saw police officer Joseph Grams, he expected to get a parking ticket with a hefty fine for parking across two handicapped spaces. He had hoped Grams would give him one and let him go home. Brown had a friend with him and a game the next day, but Grams was antagonistic, immediately telling Brown to back up and reaching toward him when he didn't do it soon enough. He had no reason to touch me. We could have resolved anything just verbally. We're two grown men. We could have resolved anything by just talking about it, Brown said. But then, Grahams called for more officers. Brown was determined to stand his ground, but he didn't want to provoke violence. Subquote, I was just being smart. I just wanted to get out of the situation and get home. Grahams' call for backup resulted in half a dozen police cars screaming into the parking lot, red and blue lights flashing. At that point the tension increased, with police standing in a circle around Brown, who was not aggressive. Sergeant Sean A. Monkey yelled at Brown to take his hands out of his pockets. Brown, who had taken his hands in and out of his pockets several times before that, replied, Hold on, I've got stuff in my hands. The next thing he knew, he was on the ground with an officer's knee in his neck. Other through others through knees and elbows, trying to get him to keep still. Brown says his hands were already behind his back when Monkey yelled, Taser, Taser, Taser! Officer Bojan Samardzik followed the command, firing the Taser into Brown's back. Subquote, it was shocking because it came out of nowhere. Brown said, I'm still trying to figure it out. The video is tough to watch. I mean, it reminds me of the police in Georgia beating the shit out of uh, Desmond marrow the NFL player. Uh, it's just needless. I mean, there's no purpose to it at all, other than they wanted to beat down a black guy. And it just so happened that he was famous, which I'm sure that was accidental on the part of the police. Uh, so that's out of Milwaukee. In Dane County, we have a third rule of Fisk. Uh, Because even though the cities were ordered alphabetically to start with, I did not want to end the podcast on a down note with the Sterling Brown stuff. Uh, So we have the third rule of Fisk because it is yet another exoneration. Uh, A Wisconsin man who spent two decades in prison, based in part on flawed FBI forensic work, has been cleared of rape, battery, and burglary charges, the latest in a series of exonerations around the country based on the now discredited technique of microscopic hair comparison. Dane County Circuit Judge Nicholas McNamara approved a motion by the Dane County District Attorney's Office on Thursday to dismiss all charges against Richard Baronek, 59. In the motion, the prosecution said while it still had a strong belief in Baronek's guilt, it was dropping the charges to spare the victim of the 1987 home invasion and sexual assault from additional trauma. Sidebar, bullshit. Because what you're going to find is that, guess what, surprise, DNA. Uh, They had DNA from the case and it didn't match this guy at all. Uh, story continues. Quote, on Friday, attorneys for Baranek said the dismissal came just days after DNA testing on crime scene evidence revealed a distinct male DNA profile that was not Mr. Baranek's. Baranek was convicted in 1990 of raping a 28-year-old mother of two in her rural Stoughton home in 1987. Six alibi witnesses placed him in North Dakota at the time of the assault. After a court battle, testing was arranged by the defense and confirmed that Baronick was excluded as the source of DNA from the hair and semen from the perpetrator's underwear left at the scene of the sexual assault. Uh, Baronick was serving a 243-year sentence imposed by Dane County Circuit Judge Daniel Moser, now retired, uh, who also issued the 2017 decision granting him a new trial. Moser said, based on the new evidence, the hair, which was allegedly that of the defendants at trial, is now known not to be that of the defendants. Surprise. Uh, Which also means, guess what? The real rapist is still out there, so this victim is still not going to get any justice. Uh, So, I guess, that does that qualify as an up note? I guess that's an up-ish note. It's better than, you know, uh, police beating someone without consequence. At least this guy's getting released. Uh, So, folks, that is it. For the state-by-state justice news, I managed to still squeeze all of this in under an hour and a half. Um, There's a lot more stuff that we did not get to cover. I'm sorry. Uh, I will continue to do my best as time progresses to give you more of these stories so that you've got them, but that's all I could conceivably fit into this time frame. Uh, As always, links to everything are in the show notes with each episode. If you have any questions about anything I've reported, if I've misstated someone's name or I've missed a key detail, we give you the links to all of the stories so that you can fact check me if you want. Uh, So that's going to do it for this week. If you are one of our uh, friends of the Fisk on Patreon, keep an eye out tomorrow for a bonus Law 140. Uh, And until then, on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, thank you all for listening. Have a great week, and I will talk to you next Monday. Take care.